Hello and welcome to Town by Nine, where nine people have up to ten minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. Started by Padre Gautuma and me, Paul Doran, in Belfast in 2011. And this is the Town by Nine podcast. We were back to full capacity at the Black Box in Belfast for nine true stories on the theme Fool. And what a night we had. Three of those stories are on this podcast, and first up is a 10 by 9 regular with a wonderful story involving teenage nudity. Here's Paul Hutchinson. You were loved. Your funeral was small. Covid. Facebook was a flood of memories about the wildest things you did, and we were sometimes fools on the same errand, chuckling at the wrong time, falling into bother, scratching an itch. Off Facebook, someone said, the drink took you. What an Irish way of saying you had an illness and a part of the fun you brought was fueled by alcohol. But it wasn't just a drink that made you monster fun. You were hilarious sober as well. And so I toast you with two memories that I treasure. Memory one. A teenage house party. Absent adults, flowing alcohol, physical fumblings, beats of sound, dancing 80s style, and lots of stirring. And those anxious, endless teenage questions. Am I the right weight, shape and size? Am I likeable in any way? What to do with all this longing? Will I ever belong? And in one room, I am talking to two friends about records, about one record, the first record by the Velvet Underground, the one with the Warhol cover, the one with Lou Reed and John Cale and Nico. We quote lyrics as if they were sacred texts, and we hope that quoting these songs will bring an easy cool to our awkward lives. The house is loud with talking, shouting, music. The jam were going underground in the room next door in a second living room. Then, abruptly, the music in the next room stops. And for a moment we can hear ourselves without a soundtrack. And then a new song comes on. Emotional Rescue by the Rolling Stones. And we nod the beat. How could you nod? It's Charlie Watts. And then Mick starts to sing in that strange falsetto. And because it's Mick Jagger, we think it's great. And then cheers come from the next room, the second living room, louder cheers than before, and then the loudest cheer of the night, and then someone we know, a bloke, bursts in the room and says, Rab is dancing, come and see. Rab is our mate, we go and see. <laughs> and there he is, Robbie Mawinney, a.k.a. Rab, dancing, dancing to emotional rescue. His skinny arms are raised up high like a holy time, and the crowd all cheer and clap him on. His eyes are closed as if in a prayer, and the crowd all cheer and clap him on. His face is a sweaty, woozy glow, and the crowd all cheer and clap him on. His mouth is pursed in concentration, and the crowd all cheer and clap him on. His bare chest is dotted with dervish dance sweat. And the crowd all cheer and clap him on. And Charlie Watts is keeping the groove. And Slinky Mick is reaching high. And the crowd all cheer and clap him on. And his butt moves well in time with the beat. His bare butt. (laughs) 
His bare butt bumps in time with the beat. And his dick is a random metronome. <laughs> Pointing where it wants. To the left. To the right. What a sight. And his balls bounce along. <laughs> to that Rolling Stones song. And the crowd all cheer and clap him on. In the public gaze of a teenage party. The fool is dancing in the buff. His birthday suit is gleaming. And the watching boys whoop along and the watching girls look away and look back. And the boys compare what's hidden with what's on show. And the joy in the room feels dangerous, perhaps contagious, and I feel a desire to be free. Not to dance naked, but to be free from all those endless, anxious questions. And Rob is looking high as he holds our gaze right here, right now. And tomorrow does not exist and only this beat. And then the next and the crowd all clap and cheer him on, on and on until the end of the song. And then applause fills the room and Rob walks off with his head down, smiling, almost sheepish, with his underwear in his hands. <laughs> Memory two. It's after school and it's rugby practice. And players are walking, running, strolling from the changing room to the centre of the pitch where we are circling a nest of rugby balls waiting to be kicked and caught. And we are silent as we wait because the rugby coach is with us and he is humourless and violent. Excuse you. <laughs> he is a stickler for the proper behaviour on and off the pitch and he is strict about our rugby attire, clean boots, socks put up to the knee, heavy cotton shorts and a thick cotton rugby shirt tucked in, always tucked in, always. And then Rab appears from the changing rooms, running towards this circle with a giant smile on his face. The rugby coach spots Rab and shouts, Hurry up, my winnie! And Rab slowly runs to the centre of the pitch and the centre of sober boys. But Rab is smiling too broadly for the situation. And this is making us smile and be nervous. And his rugby shirt is not tucked. In fact, it is gloriously untucked. Looking more like an almost to the knee dress than a regulation rugby top. But when I, what are you smiling at, boy? Life, sir, you say, and the rugby coach shakes his head. Tuck your shirt in, boy, says the coach. I can't, sir, you say, and the rugby coach is having none of this. Come here, boy, says the coach. <clears throat> and now we want to look away because this coach has a humour bypass and a habit of hitting. And Rab has a rep for getting hit. Tuck your shirt in now. I can't, sir. Why not, said the coach. And we circle of teenage boys want to look away but can't. And I hope someone is religious and praying for deliverance. Tuck your shirt in, boy, shouts the coach. I can't, sir. Why not, shouts the coach. Because I'm not wearing shorts, sir. <laughs> And all the boys know that Rab has danced naked at parties. <laughs> and all the boys know that the coach is a humourless prick. 
And here we are on the rugby pitch, waiting for the big reveal. And here he is, Rab, with no shorts on, about to be slapped silly. But has he anything underneath his untucked rugby shirt? Or will we see his balls unfilled? <laughs> Lift your shirt up, boy, so I can see what's what. Rab is smiling at the coach. I don't have shorts on, sir. Lift your shirt up now. The coach is starting to lose his temper. Rab reaches nervously for his shirt. And in my recollection, things go all slow-mo. <laughs> Rab slowly, slowly raises the bottom of his shirt, revealing more leg, more thigh. Rab continues, raising his shirt further, revealing more leg, more thigh, further, 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 until Rab reveals his groin, covered in a pair of tight speedos. He is wearing swimming trunks. Hallelujah. Rab is wearing speedos. Rab is wearing speedos. Hallelujah. Rab is wearing speedos. We look at the coach. We look at Rab. We look at Rab and his speedos. What am I going to do with you, boy? Says the coach with a heart of coal. This is usually punch bag time. The coach sighs and then, and then... Strangely, he smiles. Go and find some shorts in the store, boy. And off Rab trots, coming back with borrowed shorts and a smile all his own. A holy fool, if ever there was one. A holy fool. What a wonderful tribute, Paul. Thanks for bringing Rab Mawinney alive to us. And you can see Paul telling other stories on our YouTube channel. Most of our Zoom stories are there. And if you can, check out our website, 10by9.com. There's plenty of info there, including all our 2022 dates. Okay, back to the fools, and this story comes from a first-timer. So sit back and enjoy Grace McGee. I was a very accident-prone child, uh, more so than most children. Like, I was number one. They knew us by the sound of our car in the children's ward. And I was very well acquainted with hitting the ground and having wobbly teeth knocked out and the smell of TCP. Um, I was very foolhardy with myself, but that's mostly because I was invincible. Because being hurt uh, means nothing when you've never really been injured. And there's a big difference. I remember the day I learned that difference very clearly. So every Easter, summer and Halloween of my childhood was spent at the caravan site my mum spent her childhood in. It had a great advantage. It was on the coast just outside Newcastle and there was a small play park and most importantly, there was a big field with nothing in it. Um, this is essential for any child's natural development because it encourages boredom. Um, our caravan was at the back of the site and at the top of a very steep hill. So me and my siblings cycled everywhere, but we didn't wear helmets because those were for wusses and I was invincible. <laughs> um, you didn't really notice it as a child, but um, the site was a bit run down. Uh, the caravans were drafty. The man who ran the tuck shop was sketchy. 
and the only road was full of potholes and please keep those potholes in mind. But we loved it for the most part and I only nearly died twice. This story is about the first time. So the summer I was seven, it was very, very hot and uh, the big field with nothing in it was repurposed into a sports day field, um, which is just like the Coliseum for children. <laughs> when you spend all your holidays in one place with the same people, you make a nemesis or two. This is also essential for any child's healthy development. <laughs> so much rage and jealousy was unleashed during sports day, including from myself, which was very difficult because I am very bad at sports. Uh, but I still took part, and I even won a race for girls my age. Um, so I remember everything from that day very clearly, right up until when shit hit the farm. T minus three hours until the event. Um, it was the hottest weather I'd ever experienced in my entire life. Um, it was so warm that everyone actually went swimming in the Irish Sea, <laughs> the freezer of many a nipple. <laughs> I can remember running into the sea and I was flanked with dozens of other kids my own age, which not necessarily because I wanted to, but because I could not and would not be left out. Foolhardy still, but not for long. That evening, my mum had planned a really big barbecue. I had aunties and uncles and grandparents with caravans in the same site, so this was going to be a real feast. Uh, but while she cooked, we were banished to the play park so we couldn't bother her. Um, but spent from our day of battling in sports day and then swimming in the sea, we were starving, but uh, we were under strict instructions not to come up until six. I was the only one with a watch, so heavy was the burden that it must be me, who would tell everyone when it's time to go get dinner. Um, but it was a beautiful evening. There was a big sort of peach sunset vanishing over the morns and everybody had salty hair and freckly skin. I remember very, very clearly so far. Come six, I decided to cycle up and check the status of dinner. T minus six seconds until first impact. Um, if you remember those potholes I mentioned earlier. I'm not sure how I cycled into one when I knew the road so well, but I did. And I can remember I was just suddenly looking at the horizon upside down and thought, that's really weird, before I splattered onto the tarmac. And I skipped like a stone and left a layer of skin and blood behind me at each contact. And I can remember I was screaming and I was crying because I couldn't feel my arm and I, there was blood pouring out of my hairline and it felt hotter than the surface of the sun. And my dad's told me he heard me all the way from the back of the site at our caravan and he, he supermaned down the hill and he threw me in the car and he took me to Darn Patrick Hospital. And I remember looking in the car mirror above the window and seeing my face caved in like a pumpkin. And I remember a very nice nurse at the hospital giving me something that made me feel a lot better, which would be our old friend, Morphine. <laughs> and then they put my cast on me. <laughs> and I remember it was like paper mache, went on in big wet strips and it was very warm. But then when I came back, everyone was making a very big fuss of me. And my mom wrapped me up in a big blanket and my nanny got me like a little sandwich of rich teas and butter. Uh, they hadn't waited on me to start the barbecue, by the way. <laughs> and uh, the next thing I remember is I was lying on the floor of the bathroom, not breathing and clawing at my throat for air. Um, but after that, I got nothing. I remember waking up at home in Belfast hours later. Uh, it was the middle of the night 
was in my parents' bed with my dad, who was probably too scared to let me out of his sight. Uh, it turns out that when they'd given me morphine, they didn't weigh me, and they gave me far, far too much. I, I was foolhardy with myself, as I mentioned, but that's my business um, for a doctor to have been foolhardy with someone else's eight-year-old. is a different story. And if we were American, we would have sued. Um, but we're Irish, so we were grateful that I had no brain damage. <laughs> it was only recently my parents actually told me the rest of the story, um, that I had just turned cornflower blue and collapsed at the barbecue. And my dad drove like a maniac down those terrible country roads, only to arrive back at the hospital to find that the shift had just changed and my notes hadn't been put on the system yet and none of the nurses or doctors knew who I was or what was wrong with me. And I know I lost my little white Holy Communion shoes that I'd been wearing, um, but I don't really remember what happened with them. But I do remember the next day in Belfast, I had to go get my arm reset because it'd been a very, very bad break. And I remember the nurse wheeled me into the operating theater uh, with my dad following me. And I cried when she gave me the anesthetic injection. They always lie and said it feels like a small scratch. It most certainly does not. Um, but the nurse sort of waved down at me all cheery and she was like, say goodbye to your dad. <laughs> I was unconscious after that, so I didn't have to register how sinister that was. <laughs> My poor dad, however, was not so fortunate. Um, but I went into school a month later in September, I had my arm in a cast, and I was the envy of the classroom. I got to do all my spelling tests on the computer, and I cheated constantly. <laughs> and I didn't have to do PE for weeks. And I was fine, but that's only because I didn't remember what the rest of my family had to see happen. Um, and later on, a couple of weeks, we went back to the children's ward, and I got my cast sawed off. It was a lot of fun. I don't know if any of you have ever had a cast sawed off. Uh, my arm underneath was covered in like little white scales and you had to really carefully peel them off for the, the baby soft flesh underneath. And I still held my arm in an L shape out of habit for a long time. But that night I crawled into the top bunk with both arms. Me and my sister still shared a room back then. And uh, even in a one arm state, I refused to relinquish the throne of the top bunk. <laughs> Um, but God must have found my slumber a little too smug um, because that night I became conscious as I fell out of bed <laughs> milliseconds before I broke my other arm. <laughs> Both arms broken in one month. <laughs> this time the hospital had not changed shifts and my mum had to face the shame of the same nurse who checked me out hours earlier, putting another cast on me. Cool. That summer, my sister broke her arm. My fault. Uh, my brother broke his arm too. Not my fault. I broke both my arms, and my mum broke her foot. My mum didn't go to the hospital for that one, because um, she was scared my dad would be investigated. <laughs> Um, but anyone who knows them knows that there's no way in hell my dad could beat my mum in a fight. <laughs> but we're a very accident-prone family, and that was the last of the broken bones for up until the present. No one has broken a bone in our family since. So I think I grew out of the worst of my foolhardiness that day. Uh, but at the very least, I started wearing a helmet.
Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much, Grace. You made a great use of those props. Who would have thought those two plaster casts would come in useful someday? We love Town by Nine and always will, but if you enjoy the podcast, you can help us to keep it going with a monthly donation via Patreon or a one-off donation at PayPal. There are links to the website, 10 9com We are so grateful to everyone who's given, but we're also just grateful to have you along. Okay, on to our third story, and it comes from Paul Brady, and there's the occasional rude word in there, but as always with Paul, brilliantly used. On the last night of December 1984, the old year promised to go down in a fiery blaze of glory, and from the ashes a new legendary me was to be born. At Christmas, I was told in a conspiratorial whisper by my older sister that this year I could go with her and her boyfriend to an actual pub to bring in the new year like a grown-up. Not only that, but she would bring a friend from work who, while a good two years older than me, nonetheless seemed interested in my lanky frame and extremely pretty face. <laughs> it seemed that she wasn't in the least bit put off by my full business-at-the-front party at the back mullet, <laughs> nor my penchant for brightly coloured shoes and mismatched luminous socks. I'd just turned 16 in the summer. On my 15th birthday the previous year, I'd made a pact with myself to try and combat my crippling shyness. I had decided that no matter what I was asked to do, and no matter how uncomfortable it made me feel, that I would just take a deep breath and say yes. It was a risky strategy, but it worked. In the intervening year, I had gotten myself a Saturday job, which I loved. I worked at McManus's Shoes and Flagship Store in Cormarga, but that's a story for a different day. I'd made a few lifelong friends and was for the most part having a ball during one of the darkest eras in the history of this place we all call home. I was sneakily drinking and smoking like a boss and had dyed my hair like a third division knockoff of Lamal from Kajagoogoo. <laughs> I'd got my ear pierced and wore a large silver hoop earring in it, just like all the West Belfast Catholic parrots that had gone before me. <laughs> Things were on the up. I was confident and even a little bit cocky, as only teenagers can be when they things are going their way. Life was good and it was going to stay that way forever. New Year's Eve rolled around and I stood in front of the mirror. My obscenely tight jeans, ground a shirt and box jacket with the rolled up sleeves, showed the kind of maturity that an older lady of 18 would appreciate. <laughs> My hair and earring looked fabulous and my electric blue suede brothel creepers and mismatched day-glow socks set off my outfit just the right amount. My parents both worked nights, so as long as I was home before 2am, then nobody would even know I was gone. By the time my ma got in from work the next morning and went to bed for a few hours, I'd be awake and hangover free by the time I saw her in the early afternoon. It was the perfect crane. I winked at my reflection and gave myself a competent set of double guns. <laughs> I gave the mullet one final blast of silver crin green, then ran out to my sister's waiting car, which was parked just underneath the hole in the ozone there. 
My potential date was already in the back, and I made polite, slightly flirty chit-chat as we whipped across town. I casually asked her if she'd been to this bar before, the unspoken implication being that I'd been to lots of other adult establishments for alcohol and hadn't just been standing in a local field with my mates and a bottle of Old English and very, very wet feet. <laughs> I've tried over the years to compile what happened next from hazy memories and witness statements. But it just boils down to one undeniable truth and several patched together bullet points. The undeniable truth, 16 year old boys are assholes <laughs> and can't be trusted with even the most basic instructions. They can't help showing off and showing you up. The patched together bullet points go something like this. 9.30 p.m. We enter the bar and get a booth. It's loud and good humoured and totally intoxicating. I try very hard not to be like a toddler at a fireworks display. <laughs> 9.35. I get the first round in as a thank you for being allowed to tag along. And because I'm a man now, and that's what men do. <laughs> 9.50. I realise that it takes a long time to get served in a busy bar on New Year's Eve. So I get two drinks for everyone including two pints of cider for myself. 10 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. <laughs> 11.30 p.m. I notice that the words that are inside my head aren't my mouth in the right order coming out of. <laughs> two pints of cider are swimming around in front of me. I know that it has been a long while since I've spoken to my date. She's looking the other way, slightly embarrassed. I try counting in my head. Two, six, four, six, six, eight. These paints are either seven and eight or nine and ten. I was six foot four and ten stone. Obviously, it's a while ago. <laughs> I physically don't have the room for more than four pints. I'm essentially renting those other half dozen and rent day has arrived. In my head, I get up, smile warmly and say, you know, I'm quite warm, so I'm going to go and get a breath of fresh air if nobody minds. I'll be back in a jiffy. What actually transpires is I wobble to my feet, knock those two pints over myself, say, Sorry. Shick. <laughs> and after a few seconds of steadying myself, going to box. Sick. 11.45. I just reached the toilet and no more and launched into a cataclysmic fit of vomiting, the like of which I have never experienced in my 16 years. Midnight. There is a momentary calm from the retching storm. In the distance, I hear cheering an old Lang Syne. The second storm arrives with a vengeance. 12.15, I stagger from the cubicle and make my way to the sinks and mirrors. I inspect the damage. I am green. Not an incredible Hulk green, but similar to that apple white paint that is currently all the rage green. My long curly mullet is stuck to my pallid, sweaty face at the front and filled with barley and small cubes of carrot at the back. 
I remember then that A, I'd eaten homemade soup for my lunch, and B, there'd been nobody there holding my hair back while I called for Ralph and Jesus down the big white telephone. A barman on his break brings me a pint of water and a cigarette. He also informs my sister where I am. Not all heroes wear capes. In the meantime, my other sister and her husband is arrived from their house nearby to bring in the new year. 12.30 a.m. The two men are dispatched to the toilets by my sisters to get me. I'm sitting in the sink like a stranded octopus. <laughs> they carry me in an ill-deserved king's chair out of the toilets towards the street. I vaguely remember wheeling past my date who's standing holding my coat, head cocked at the side, with a look of pity on her face like I'm a sick cocker spaniel. I grab my coat as I whiz past and quietly judge her for still being there. <laughs> they sit me outside on an empty beer keg while they decide what to do. One of them goes and gets the car. They decide that I'm far too sick and drunk to go home so they'd bring me to my sister's house nearby to try and sober me up. 12.35. I'm sick again on the ground from my new metal keg thrown. 12.36. I fall off the keg into it. 12.37. I'm lifted, wiped down, and folded into the front of the car. 12.39. The heat of the car makes me feel sick. I roll down the window. 12.40, the force of the air on my face makes me feel sick. I roll the window back up again. 12.41, the heat of the car makes me feel sick. I roll down the window. 12.42, the force of the air on my face makes me feel sick. I make a noise like I might cry. I roll the window almost all the way up put my jacket over my face and hang the sleeve out the window. I breathe cold air through the sleeve like a scuba diver. 12.45, we reach my sister's house and I'm laid out on the sofa in the recovery position beside a bucket. 12.46 to 4 a.m. Five a.m. Finally home, I'm being sick for hopefully the last time in the kitchen sink when my dad arrives in from night duty. He seems to be blaming my sister's boyfriend for letting me get into this state. Seems weird to me, but I'm too sick and tired to care. As I stagger past him, he reminds me that I'm lucky he won't tell my mother what a state I get into. I thank him for his discretion and apologize for my behavior. 8.30 a.m., I'm woken by the shaking and shout of my mother and her cries to the heavens for the strength of God to help her deal with her shameful alcoholic son. <laughs> 8 45 a.m. I realize my dad's a spineless lamb bastard <laughs> and can never be trusted again. And to finish up, I didn't eat solid food for the first four days of 1985. <laughs>
but it did raise from the ashes of much older and wiser man. I eventually got all the barley out of my curds. The smell of cider makes me wretch to this very day. I thankfully never saw the girl again. I switched from cider to vodka as my drink of choice because I'd heard from another 16-year-old that it didn't get you anywhere near as drunk and that the hangovers were essentially non-existent. <laughs> as I knelt clinging to the toilet again three weeks later, slowly retching myself inside out, I had an epiphany. 16-year-olds are fucking assholes. <laughs> Thanks so much, Paul. Who'd want to be a teenager? And that is it for this podcast. We love to hear from you and you can stay in touch with us on social media, email or via our website, 10by9.com. Keep an eye out for upcoming events and themes and tell as many people as you can about the podcast. Recommendation is the best way to get noticed. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. For now, bye-bye. <laughs>